You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. If you've been with us for quite some time, we have been in the gospel of Luke since Advent, since a few weeks before Christmas. And today we come to the end of Luke. And in many ways, uh, Luke ends in kind of the same way it begins. Uh, It begins at the temple in Jerusalem with Zechariah the priest worshiping. And then you just heard Luke ends at the temple in Jerusalem with the disciples of Jesus worshiping. Luke begins with the announcement of good news. Remember, the, the, the angel came to the shepherds and said, behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Uh, for today a Savior is born. And, and then Luke ends with good news being sent forth to all the people, beginning at Jerusalem. Luke begins with joy. Zechariah and Elizabeth are promised joy. John the Baptist leaps for joy while he's still in the womb. Mary sings a song of joy. And then Luke ends with joy. You just heard it. The disciples of Jesus return to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And the question is, how did they get so joyful? Because on Easter morning, at the beginning of Luke 24, they were anything but joyful. They, they were down, they were defeated. It was like the losing locker room at the Super Bowl. They were totally, thoroughly defeated. We're here in the loser's locker room with the captain of the losing team, Peter. Peter, what were your thoughts about the game? Well, we thought we had a good game plan. <laughs> we, thought that, we thought that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but I guess not. It was a tough day. We played our best, but it just wasn't our day, Right? They were so defeated on Easter morning. No joy, right? They were, the, 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 the cross had devastated their leader, their Lord. And it had totally dashed their hopes. So what happened between the beginning of Luke 24 and the end of Luke 24? Like how did the disciples go from being these sad, defeated, unbelieving people to being these joyful, bold, worshiping witnesses that we see at the end of Luke. How do we account for that total turnaround? Sunday morning, all they could think about was bad news. Sunday evening, they're convinced of the good news, and it gives them great joy. What happened? Well, in this passage, Jesus does some things for his disciples that change their lives forever, and, and because of that, it changes the world forever, including our lives. So let's look at them. Here's the first thing that Jesus does for them. He comes to them. He comes to them to give them a personal experience of the good news, that he is risen. Let's look at Luke 24 together. If you don't have a Bible and and want to turn in one to follow along, there's some black Bibles there in the pews. Uh, It's on page 859 in those Bibles, 859, Luke 24. This whole chapter covers the entire day of the first Easter. Remember in the morning, the women come to the tomb, the tomb is empty, they go and tell the disciples, the apostles about it, and the the apostles did not believe them. Then in the afternoon, which we looked at last week, Jesus appeared to two other disciples as they're on the road to Emmaus, but they did not recognize him until he broke the bread in their presence. 
Uh, so that was in the afternoon. And now we come to the evening of Easter Sunday. Uh, look at verse 36. This is the evening. As they were talking about these things, they is the 11 apostles and the people that are gathered with them and the two disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus because those two disciples came back to report what, how, that they had met Jesus. And so it's all of them together. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself just stood among them. He's like shows up. And Jesus said to them, peace to you. I love this. I love that the first thing the risen Jesus says to his disciples is, peace to you. Peace to you. Because they're not experiencing much peace. John's gospel says they're hiding behind locked doors because they're so afraid for their lives. They're scared. They're confused. They're sad. And so Jesus comes to them and speaks peace. But their reaction to seeing Jesus is anything but peaceful. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened. They were terrified and they thought, because they thought they saw a spirit. They thought they saw a ghost. They thought they saw a disembodied person and that completely freaked them out, which is understandable. If you went to a friend's funeral on Friday afternoon and you witnessed your friend be buried and then he showed up at your house on Sunday, you would not have a calm, measured response to that. You'd be freaking out. And you wouldn't have any rational explanation for it, would you? You'd be like, am I seeing something? Is that somebody else? Am I being tricked in some way? Is somebody pulling something on me? One of the ways that people sometimes try to explain away the accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus is to say that the disciples didn't actually see the real Jesus, they were just hallucinating. They just saw an apparition, they saw a vision of some sorts. But that's actually exactly what the disciples thought they were seeing. Their testimony was, yeah, we did think we were hallucinating. We thought our eyes were deceiving us. We thought we were seeing a spirit, a ghost, a, an apparition. But their testimony is also, but that's not what it was. That's not what it, what it, what it was. Look at verse 38. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? He looks into their soul. He knows that they're doubting. He's like, see my hands, see my feet? It's me, it's myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his feet. Jesus comes near to them and he says, hey guys, it's me, like in the flesh. And to prove it, he engages their senses. It's like, touch me with your hands. See me with your eyes. And so they did. They, they moved in for closer inspection. They looked into his actual eyes. They, they were embraced by his, they felt his actual arms as they embraced him. They, they maybe patted him on his actual back. Some of them saw, felt the wounds in his wrists and in his feet and, and, and the wound in his side. Like this was not a ghost. This was really Jesus. Flesh, blood, bones. Jesus, today after church, I will shake some of your hands. I might give some of you a hug. I might put my arm around you and, and pray with you. And guess what? I will not go home thinking, I just saw a ghost of that person. They were just a figment of my imagination. 
I will be convinced that it was the real you. Why? Because my senses confirmed it. That's what's happening here. But listen, in spite of all this sensory evidence, verse 41 says they were still struggling to believe. Verse 41 says they, they still disbelieved for joy. Isn't that an interesting phrase? It's a different kind of disbelief. It's a little more positive. It's not disbelief because of cynicism or pride or intellectual hangups. They're disbelieving because of joy. They're like, this is too good to be true. I can't can't even believe it. It's too good to be true. And as they were marveling over this, Jesus says in verse 41, hey, y'all got anything to eat? (laughs) This is so awesome. This maybe is my favorite post-resurrection moment for Jesus. Because here we are in one of the most pivotal moments in human history. The risen Messiah is appearing to the apostles who would lead his church in the most important mission in the history of the world for the first time. And he's like, y'all got anything to eat around here? I'm starving. And they're like, yes, we do. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And verse 43 says they watched him eat it right in front of them. They saw him scarf it down. Why is Luke telling us all these details, these particular details? I think it's because it's what really happened. Luke is a historian. Luke is giving a historical account. That's been his goal from the very beginning of Luke. This is what Luke says in, in, at the very beginning in Luke chapter one. Luke says, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you. I'm writing it down just as it happened. Why? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In other words, Luke says the things, Luke, Luke says the things that you've heard about Jesus from the eyewitnesses, I want you to know them for certain. I've done the research on this, and the risen Jesus is not a phantom. He's not a spirit. He's not a symbol. His resurrection is not some kind of metaphor meant to inspire our souls with the possibilities of new beginnings, like the eternal springtime of the soul, butterflies, and, you know, that's not what it is. He's like, Jesus is a living, breathing, resurrected man in a physical body. The disciples saw him. They touched him. They had a meal with him. And that confirmed the good news of his resurrection to them. And guess what? They never doubted it again. They never doubted it again. They gave their lives for it. Why was it so important for the disciples to know that Jesus was raised bodily, physically? Why is it so important for us to know it? Well, a lot of reasons. One reason is that it proves that the cross worked doesn't it? Like we say Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, but how, we, how do we know that it worked? How do we know that God accepted Jesus' death as payment for our sins? Well, the answer is because he was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is kind of like a receipt. If you ever shop at Costco, uh, like I do, you know that at Costco, when you're leaving the store, they stop you and they check your, they want to see your receipt. 
They want to know that you've paid for everything, all the stuff in this huge shopping cart that you don't need, 300 rolls of toilet paper and all the stuff. And they were like, did you pay for this? And so they look at your receipt and they look at your cart and they write it off. And then they're like, okay, you paid for this. You're free to go. The resurrection is proof that Jesus paid in full for the sins of the world. It says so in Romans chapter four, verse 25. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He was hung on the cross for our trespasses, for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. What does that mean? It means his resurrection says, you're good. You're good to go. You're right with God. You're justified. The payment was accepted. Your debt is all paid up. We have the receipt, the resurrected Jesus. Another reason why it's so important that Jesus was raised bodily is that it guarantees, it guarantees that our future will be gloriously personal and gloriously tangible. Like the disciples' interaction with Jesus here is just a taste of our future. They see the real Jesus whom they loved They talk with him, they laugh with him, they hug him, they share a meal with him. He's not just a memory. He's not just a spirit. He's a real person in a real body. And that's our future too in Christ. Through Christ, we get to live forever in new bodies, on a new earth, having relationships with one another, real relationships with the ones we love. Jesus comes to his disciples personally in this passage, and their experience with him changes them forever. It convinces them of the good news that Jesus has risen, changes them, and it fills them with joy. But here's a second thing he does for them here. He comes to them, but he also teaches them. He teaches them. He opens their minds to the good news found in the scriptures. Uh, I, I think it would be an understatement to say that Jesus has their attention in this scene. Like he's just showed up stinking risen from the dead. So they are locked in. They are hanging on his every word. And he feels like, oh, this is a good time for a little teaching. Kent Hughes, a commentator on this, makes a great point about why in this moment does Jesus teach them from the scriptures. I love this. Kent Hughes says, Jesus did not want the disciples to rest their belief in his resurrection on their personal experience alone. He wanted them to ground their experience of his resurrection on the massive testimony and perspective of Scripture. That's a good word for us. Because having a personal relationship with God, a personal experience with God is important. But that is not the final word on the matter. Like we have to confirm and interpret our experience with God in the, through the lens of Scripture. Like our faith is grounded on God's word not on our subjective experiences. So Jesus takes them to the scriptures. Look at verse 44. Jesus said to them, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When Jesus says the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms. He's talking about the entire Old Testament. He's basically saying there's not a single section of the Hebrew scriptures. There's not a single section of the Old Testament that doesn't talk about me, that doesn't point to me. The whole thing is about me. 
So Jesus is either a delusional narcissist or the whole Bible is about him. The point of the whole Bible is about him. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's so beautiful to me. He opened their minds to understand. Didn't they understand the scriptures before this? They had grown up around the Bible, around the scriptures. They, they had spent three years with Jesus, the greatest Bible teacher ever. They knew a lot of Bible. They knew what the Bible says, but apparently they knew what the Bible said without knowing what it truly means. So they needed Jesus to open their minds so that they could understand it. To understand means to bring everything together so that it makes sense. Pull disparate parts together so that it all makes sense as a whole. That's what it means. And we need that kind of help too when we come to the Bible. We need the exact same thing. We can't just read the Bible and understand what it means for our lives without God's help. We need the Spirit of God to take the different threads and strands of the Scriptures and begin to weave them together so that we see the beautiful tapestry of Jesus. So that we're like, oh, now I see. And that's what Jesus does for the disciples here. He pulls it together for them so that they can see him there in the Scriptures. Look at verse 45 again. It says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, And he said to them, thus it is written. Where is it written? In the scriptures, in the Old Testament, that the Christ should, number one, suffer, and then that the Christ, number two, on the third day should rise from the dead, and then, number three, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Where is it written in the Old Testament that the Christ must suffer? Well, lots of places. It's alluded to in tons of places. Uh, The sacrificial system set forth in Leviticus shows us that without, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, we need a perfect sacrifice to atone for all of our sin once and for all. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. The blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 is what marked God's people for salvation when God delivered them out of Egypt. And Jesus identifies himself as the greater Passover lamb by inaugurating the new covenant at the Passover meal. We say it every week. It was at the Passover meal that Jesus held up a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm the lamb, the new Passover lamb. God's people are now marked with my blood for salvation, which meant he had to suffer. Isaiah 53 talks of a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Psalm 22 describes someone in agony. Read Psalm 22. This person is in agony. They're forsaken by God, mocked by the crowds, bones out of joint, desperately thirsty, while others divide his garments and cast lots for his clothing. Does that sound familiar? Where is it written in the Old Testament that the Christ would rise from the dead. Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days, God will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we may live before him. Psalm 16. God, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your holy one see decay or corruption. You make known to me the path of life. Where is it written in the Old Testament that the forgiveness of sins 
should be proclaimed to all nations in Christ's name. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through your offspring. Who is that offspring? Galatians 3 tells us that offspring is Christ, uh, Abraham's uh, offspring who would bless all the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, God says to his servant, who is the Christ, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Psalm 2, the Lord said to his Christ, you are my son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. Truly, I mean truly, the good news has always been for everyone, right? The good news was always meant for all nations. People from every tongue and tribe and nation could repent, which means to turn away from sin, turn away from false gods, and they could find forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ. They could finally experience the freedom from the slavery of sin, freedom from the crushing debt of sin. They could find clean conscience, peace for their souls. They could know God and his favor and the life he intends for them. And the disciples are like, this is amazing. But Jesus, we've always read the scriptures to say that the nations would come to Jerusalem, that the nations would stream to Jerusalem to hear the ways of God and to, and to, and to know his favor. It says that in Isaiah 2, and it says that in Micah 4, it says that in Zechariah 8 and other places. But you're saying, Jesus, that the message is actually going to go out from Jerusalem, that, that good news is going to be heralded to the whole world from Jerusalem, that lives are going to be changed all over the world because of what goes out from Jerusalem. Jesus, this is awesome. This is amazing. This is so great. And he's like, hold up. I'm not done. Verse 48, you are the witnesses of these things. And they're like, come again? What'd you say? What was that? He's like, no, yeah, you guys are the witnesses to take this out from Jerusalem. You are God's plan to get the good news to the nations starting from Jerusalem, the place where I suffered and died and was raised from the dead. Which brings us to the last thing Jesus does here. He comes to them to give them a personal experience of, his, of the good news. He teaches them to show them the good news in the scriptures, but he also sends them. He sends them. He commissions them with good news. Question for us is, if the good news is for everyone, then how does it get to everyone? How does it get to every nation? How does it get to every generation? And, and the answer is, through ordinary people who've been with Jesus. That's the plan. Through ordinary people who've been with Jesus, who are convinced that Jesus died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and that life and forgiveness are found in him. Jesus, in this account, is just staring at 11 ordinary men, like 11 average dudes with no real pedigree to be spiritual leaders, no real qualifications to be world changers. And he says to them, you are my witnesses. I'm sending you. Later, about 40 days later, in Acts chapter 1, uh, we're told that it's these 11 plus a small group of others who make up Jesus' band of followers. Uh, 120 people total. That was the size of Jesus' church plant after three years of ministry. 120 people. Jesus would not have been invited to speak at conferences on how to grow your church plant, right? Not super impressive. 120 folks 
But those 120 people were his plan to reach the world with the good news. What did Jesus mean when he said, you are witnesses? Well, based on our text today, it's a three-part definition. uh, Witness is a three-part definition. First, it means tell and see what you've heard. Tell what you've, I'm sorry, tell what you've seen and heard. Tell what you've seen and heard. That's what a witness does. A witness doesn't have to make stuff up. A witness doesn't have to be uh, eloquent. A witness doesn't have to know all the answers to all the questions. A witness just tells and sees what he or she has seen and, and, and heard. In this case, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and forgiveness of sins is found in him. Second part of the definition, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Tell what you have seen and heard in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 49. Verse 49, Jesus says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What's the promise? It's the Holy Spirit. He's already told them, I'm gonna send you the counselor, the comforter, my spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Why do they need to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high? Because the advancement of the gospel is not something you can do on your own strength, right? Only God can change lives. Only God can regenerate people, right? So we need the Holy Spirit to empower our words, to empower our actions if the gospel is ever gonna take root in the lives of people. Third part of the definition of witness. With the blessing of the ascended son. Tell what you've seen and heard in the power of the Holy Spirit with the blessing of the ascended son. Look at verse 50. Verse 50 is 40 days later. This is not, no longer on Easter evening. 40 days have gone by when we come to verse 50. We're told this in Acts chapter one. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, it, it, it really reads as while he kept on blessing them, raining down blessings on them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, not just into the heavens, into heaven, the, the place where God dwells, the, the realm of God. That's what heaven is. So the last thing Jesus does is to bless them, then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. His ascension means lots of things for us. It means that he has all power and authority because to be at the right hand of the Father means I, there's no position higher. His ascension means he intercedes for us. I mean, he's our constant advocate in heaven. His ascension means he's with us. Like the seat of his power is not localized in Jerusalem. Instead, he's seated in heaven and his spirit is sent everywhere to be with his people everywhere and for all time. So he didn't stay local, he's gone global. It's no wonder the disciples are so joyful at the end of Luke. Jesus has just sent them to tell the nations what they've seen and heard and then he's promised the power of his Holy Spirit to help them do so and he left them with his blessing, his authority, his presence. 
because he's the ascended king. So if you read the book of Acts, which is just Luke part two, Luke also wrote Acts, and it's just his second part of the account. If you read that book, you find out that the disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do, told, told them to do. They took the good news from Jerusalem. They took it into Judea, which was the surrounding region. Then they took it out into Samaria, which was a little further out. And then it says they took it to the remotest parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter four, the, the disciples said, hey, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Like, we gotta tell you what we've seen and heard. We gotta tell you, we're compelled to witness, to tell what we've seen and heard. In Acts chapter 17, they're called men who turn the world upside down, which is a far cry from the sorry group of losers in the locker room after the Easter morning, right? They've come a long way. They've, they've turned the world upside down. They took the good news to the world, and here we are today. Isn't that amazing? We are gathered worshiping the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus in North America in the year 2022 because these disciples were faithful to bear witness to what they've seen and heard. And I want you to know Jesus sends us too. He sends ordinary people into all our ordinary circumstances, but he sends us with extraordinary power an extraordinary blessing to tell what we've seen and heard. Christ died for our sins. He was raised on the third day. And forgiveness of sins is possible for anyone through faith in him. It's good news for everyone. Let's thank him for it. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.